Welcome back to Parsha Panorama. This week's Parsha, we actually open a new Sefer, Sefer Shemos, and of course the Parsha is Parsha Shemos. Now, Shemos is actually a super-packed Parsha, so we have a lot to discuss, and I'm going to try to fit all the things I want to fit into this Parsha Panorama, into this hopefully 30-minute slot. Probably we'll go a little bit over. I don't want to make it more than 40 minutes. And if we don't get to everything, Bli Nader, there are really awesome conversations to be had about some of the things in this week's Parsha. And if I don't get to them in this Parsha panorama, then before Shabbos Bezras Shem, there will be maybe a Real Talk Torah devoted to it. So we'll try our best. The truth is there was one topic that I was thinking of making its own Real Talk Torah, uh, but we'll see what we can do. Um, of course, before we get started, I want to just acknowledge our sponsors, Yona and Connie Laster. Thank you so much for your generous sponsorship. Anyone who wants to sponsor, you know where to reach me, the database at gmail.com, the data, then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com to make your sponsorship today. Okay, now for Parsha Shemos, um, once again, we it's a new safer, and one of the things that I had mentioned last week is that we are transitioning. The screen is changing, and the screen changes immediately. We went from the family, the first royal family of Hashem's revolution, Hashem's nation. That is the nation of of the Bnei Israel. So they were just a family last week, and they were maybe seventy people. Um, with 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 some additions, but basically they were they were um, they were seventy people, and they made it down to Mitzrayim. Then Yosef and his brothers they made up to whatever extent they made up, and then they all died. Okay, and now we are in Parshas Shemos, where we are now looking at generations, a couple generations later, um, and we we see all the grandchildren, but now we are not looking at any one. Family, we are looking at a full nation. In fact, Shemos is the first time that they are actually referred to as a nation. They are dubbed a nation by none other than Paro. So, you know, our, our enemies know us more than we do. And Paro, very early on. Um, so, right after the Chumash lists the names of the Shvatim, we re- um, right, the Ramban says we recapitulate, we get all the names again. And once we get all the names after that, this which we that which we um, warned Asher Yosef. We have a, a new a new king who does not know Yosef, he says to his people, Am We have a nation, the Bnei Israel, Rav that is mightier than we. Okay, so Paro makes this point. Paro sets the stage for us, believe it or not. We are looking at Am Yisrael. So we it's it's no longer uh, the Machana, it's no longer the the mishpacha it's um it's an entire nation now okay so that's that, that's where we are now we're looking at am yisrael now what exactly is parsha shmos about you know although it's a packed parsha with a lot of mini stories scattered throughout but shmos is obviously about galus and sheibud mitzrayim it's where the sheibud the subjugation begins the egyptian exile and that's that's the main that's perhaps at least half of the main story of Parsha Shemos. But in, in just a couple moments, I'm going to give you the specific components of the Parsha just to walk you through the Parsha bullet by bullet, step by step. But what I'll say first is that Shemos can really be broken down, Parsha Shemos can be broken down into 
two major sections or two major scenes. If we could put a split screen, though obviously the Chumash presents it in a certain order, but if we could put a split screen on, I would say on the one hand, we have the the view of an entire Klal Yisrael and how exactly Paro and his kingdom, how they relate to that nation through their decrees, through the Gullus, the infanticide, killing all the, Egyptian, all the Jewish males um, or the Hebrew Israelite males. Okay, so that's one half. And the other half is actually a more local story about an individual named Moshe Rabbeinu who we meet for the first time, obviously, in this week's Parsha. And this, what we would say is, this is, um, you know, behind the scenes of the Egyptian exile, we have the Geula in the works. Hashem is designating His messenger and human redeemer of the Bnei Yisrael. So, we, and, and that obviously, in a certain sense, Moshe is a protagonist all himself, but the larger story is really not about Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's the point. Moshe Rabbeinu is being appointed as the representative of Klal Yisrael. So this is a parsha about Am Yisrael, and it's about the Gullus and the Geula. In fact, that's actually how the Ramban famously um, um, refers to Sefer Shemos. He refers to Sefer Shemos as Sefer Gullus Vigula. Because that's exactly what it is. It starts with the Gullus, and then it ends... Well, eventually, Shemos is going to end with a geula for Klal Yisrael. Now, we know that Shemos takes us a little bit past the, the exodus from Egypt, and that's an issue that we're going to get to in a few weeks from now, um, why exactly Shemos doesn't end with just the exodus. That would obviously make the book much shorter, um, but there, there is a reason, and the Ramban will actually have an answer for that, but that's not for now. What is for now is to understand that we are now looking at Am Yisrael, we're looking at a full nation, and of course, Moshe Rabbeinu's whole role, whatever you want to say about the individual story of Moshe Rabbeinu, which there is plenty to be said about that. In fact, that's one thing that if, if you go back to uh, a previous podcast um, uh, just a couple days ago, my brothers joined me for our second Parsha panel where we discussed why Moshe Rabbeinu was chosen. How did HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kaviyachol come to the decision of Moshe Rabbeinu? Um, we, so we discussed the origins of Moshe, so go back and listen to that on the Parsha panel. But the point is that the major story here is the story about Am Yisrael. And Moshe Rabbeinu's role, whatever his individual story is, is really about his connection to the nation and his role as a representative for them. Okay, so now let's get to the specific components of the Parsha, and then we'll start addressing some major, major questions that have to be addressed. Now, there are many ways you could break up the components of the parsha, and I, you know, I have it in a very. In, I, I, what I did, I, I guess, I can say was, I tried to break them into the most simplistic components possible. I came out with five sections, though you could break it down, and you might find more sections. But for the for purposes of simplicity, there are five sections. Section number one is the Egyptian exile itself. We get obviously the names of the shvatim, but then we talk about that new king who rose over Egypt, who didn't recognize Yosef. And then we have the commandments of, of Paro. So that's the infanticide, um, killing all the, um, you know, after the the task masters are appointed over the Bnei Israel, they have to build um, cities. But then uh, Paro, um, with, with um, some information from his astrologers, he decides that he's going to kill out all the baby boys. We know the story of Shifra and Pua, who come to the rescue. They're them, so we, uh, those two heroines. But that's section one. That's all the overall Egyptian exile. Section two is 
all the stories beginning with Moshe Rabbeinu. We meet Moshe Rabbeinu, just meeting Moshe Rabbeinu. We have the story of his birth with the unnamed of Ish Mibes Levi and the, the woman who's from Levi. So we know that's Amram and Yocheved. And we know that Moshe Rabbeinu is hidden in a basket, babysat by Miriam, but then retrieved by Basparo. And then very soon after that, the Torah cuts to Moshe Rabbeinu growing up, where he gets involved in two fights. Um, you know, we, he, there are two fights in a flight, right? Two fights. One one fight is between an Egyptian and a, and, and a Hebrew. The second fight is between two Hebrews. And once Moshe Rabbeinu is banished by them, essentially, and Moshe Rabbeinu, um, um, it comes out that Moshe Rabbeinu had killed an Egyptian man, so Moshe Rabbeinu flees the scene of Egypt, and the country of Egypt, for that matter, and he goes all the way to Midian. So this whole, this whole second section is the beginning of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Okay, fine. Third section is everything that takes place in Midian, and there's a lot that takes place in Midian. So obviously Moshe Rabbeinu engages in his third fight of the Parsha, uh, trying to mediate. He saves Yisro's daughters um, at, at a well. He, and Moshe Rabbeinu starts a new family with Yisro. Um, he marries Yisro's daughter, Tzipora. We know that he has two children. Um, also, Moshe Rabbeinu has a long back and forth with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with Hashem, at the burning bush, at Chorev, which is really Har Sinai. And this is um, where Hashem spends a long time trying to, quote-unquote, convince Moshe Rabbeinu to, to go through with the mission. Um, and Because Moshe Rabbeinu um, is hesitant. He doesn't want to do it for a plethora of reasons. He doesn't want to go down to Egypt. He doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't believe in the people. He thinks Aaron should do it. And he has a speech impediment. And there's a lot to be said about that conversation. This partial, once again, is so packed. There's so much that we're not even, you know, we're like, we're not even through. And again, I wish I can get to everything and spend so much time on everything, but we're going to have to keep it a little bit more global. Section number four, is when Moshe is finally en route to Egypt. We um, there's a Moshe has a really strange near death experience in the inn in the motel on the way to Mitzrayim, where he uh, finds himself about to be killed by Hashem, actually. And most people don't even notice this part of the parsha, and because any anyone who does notice it has a hard time explaining it. Like, when the world is going on, why is Hashem about to kill Moshe? Hashem just told Moshe to go down to Mitzrayim. If we have time in this podcast, we'll get to it. Otherwise, we'll do another podcast. Be'ezras Hashem. This won't go um, unexplained. So we'll have to talk about that awkward moment that when Hashem almost kills Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, but what happens is Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, presumably the problem is that he didn't um, circumcise his son. Which son? It's not clear. The Mepharshim actually, the Midrashim have difference of opinions on which son it was. Maybe Pashupshat will go with Rashi that he didn't circumcise his second son, Eliezer. And, and though, again, there are other opinions. But Moshe Rabbeinu didn't circumcise his son. So Tzipora comes to the rescue. Moshe is about to die. Um, so the Midrash says that Amalek swallows him up. But Pashup Shah, we don't really know. Could be that Moshe Rabbeinu fell ill. But the point is that Sipora somehow recognized that the problem was that their son didn't have a circumcision, a circumcision so she gave the brismila herself. Though, in a previous Real Talk Torah, we spoke about whether or not a woman can perform a brismila, and we spoke about alternatives to how to understand this story from the Gemara. But 
That said, Sipora comes to the rescue. A, a bris milah ultimately gets performed on their son. Moshe Rabbeinu is freed. And then right after that, Moshe Rabbeinu meets Aaron. Hashem says that Aaron was gonna, is going to help you speak to Paro. So that's when, on the route to, um, on the road to Egypt, um, Aaron meets Moshe. Finally, section 5, we have what's happening in Egypt. Moshe finally confronts Paro um, to give the, over the messages that Hashem wanted him to. Um, and that's when the slavery intensifies. The people are frustrated. Moshe is frustrated, and Hashem says, "Now you'll see what I'm about to do." And that's where Parsha Shemos closes out. So once again, just to give you those five sections, we have the overall story of the Egyptian exile, all the decrees by Paro, the heroic acts of Shevarimpua. Section two is all the beginning of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, his birth, his growth, his engagement in the world, and the fights that he joins. Um, section three is everything that takes place in Midian, Hashem's uh, back and forth with Moshe, etc. Number four is the strange experiences that happen on the way back to Mitzrayim. And then finally, number five, we're back in Mitzrayim and Moshe Rabbeinu is officially beginning his mission and his tenure as Hashem's messenger. Okay, so far so good. Now, for just a minute, we'll take a step back and look at Shemos as a larger book, right? So Shemos is not just a parsha in its own right, but it's a larger book, and we've 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 changed the screen a little bit, but it's its own book, right? So Bereshis closed, and now we're looking at a new part of the story, right? So on the one hand, it's a new story, but on the other hand, it's obviously connected to the previous. So the question is, on the larger map of the Torah, what exactly does Shemos represent? So. We'll come back to that question soon. I want to talk about another theme, which we referenced in a Muster Minutes, um, in our Muster Minutes series. We spoke about the theme of names, right? Shemos is known as the Book of Exodus, which makes a lot of sense because that's what the book is about, um, or Sefer Hagula, but it's also the Book of Shemos, which means names, which is a strange name for a book. So in Muster Minutes, we spoke about the Midrash that says that the Bnei Israel did not change their their um, their Hebrew names, which is a part of the cause and the basis for their geula in the first place. So that's well, that's one thing to notice. Though what, what's interesting about Shemos is it does start off with the names of the Shvatim. And I'll just point out that the Sfarno says that it was, in a sense, where where the Gullus began was that the Bnei Israel started to degenerate. They went from names to numbers. He doesn't say these words explicitly, but he, he talks about when the, when the Chumash describes how the Bnei Israel started teeming, Right, how they started to uh, multiply. So, in a sense, the word vayishritsu has connotations of being like a sheretz, becoming debased. And even if they maintained their Hebrew names, their spiritual debasement was also a a um, you know almost an animalistic way of losing their humanity. And in a certain sense, although. They obviously maintained a certain, to a certain degree, they maintained their names, but also to a certain degree, they also started to forget their essence. And that might explain how the Gaulists ensued to begin with, right? So, um, you know, the, the fact that they did not recognize their role in this world, the fact that they started to assimilate with the, with the, with the B'nai Mitzrayim, so that would be a contributing factor, right? The Parsha starts off that they are Shvatim. And we have the names of each of the Shvatim, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and so on and so forth. But then, slowly, as you get, if you as you start through, um, you know, you start cruising through Shmos, names start to disappear. And then it's Vayilich Ishmi Beis Levi. We don't even hear his name as Amram until next week's Parsha. And so names becomes very, uh, you know, the, the names start to get really blurry. And this is where we start to lose ourselves. 
the first significant name that we get, um, you know, we, we, the truth is we get Shifra and Pua who are fighting against the current. And that, uh, that, that, there's something to be said about that. Shifra and Pua, their recognition is the fact that they didn't just go with the flow like most of the Bnei Israel at the time were doing. They just went with the flow. Shifra and Pua said, I know there's a decree from Paro and we're going to go against that. So a, a name in the beginning of Shemos is very noteworthy. Uh, uh, the, the name represents authority. It represents, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not going to just, you know, go with the flow. And with Moshe Rabbeinu, the next significant name is Moshe, right? He, he, is, he is the personality that represents the mission of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And so, of course, he's, uh, he's the natural ambassador for the B'nai Israel because, once again, he was the one who, you know, for, in, he's the one who crafted himself, you know, going, uh, without getting into what I discussed with my brothers in the Parsha panel. But the point is that Moshe Rabbeinu crafted himself into a person of significance, a person of essence, and not just a, you know, like a chameleon, someone who just merges in with, um, his, with his surroundings. That was the opposite of Moshe Rabbeinu. So to be a name, Shemos, right, to, to earn Geula, that's something that you have to, to you, in a sense, you have to make a name for yourself. Now, obviously, we spoke in Parshas Noach and Anachacha, how making a name for yourself is obviously not what it's about. The goal is not to make a name for yourself, but the goal is to um, have your name be represented or, or to represent HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world, to really make a name for Hashem, to make sure that everyone knows who Hashem is, that Hashem is in charge and not Paro. That's obviously a big part of what um, Sefer Shemos is about, right? We know that Paro eventually is going to say, oh, who is Hashem that I should, I should even listen to him? Meaning he doesn't recognize the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So all of that is significant backdrop for the Book of Names. So that's just something to think about. Okay, now let's go into the big conversation that I wanted to have today. The main conversation, at least, is the conversation of... Sorry, so yeah, that, that conversation is the conversation about that big question that I think basically everyone asks every Pesach at the Seder. Um, and if they don't, you know, maybe it's because maybe either they didn't think of it or maybe they're just trying to be kind to tradition and not be oppositional. But we're, you know, we're in a generation of chutzpahniks. So, and, and if, if you're, if you're a chutzpahnik, you're going to ask this question. If you're the Russia at the Seder, you'll probably ask this question. So why not? Let, let, let's tackle it. The question that I, that I, that I posed, at least in the preview when on for the database WhatsApp group, that you can join today. Just reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. But the, the database WhatsApp group, um, I, po- I, I presented a preview, which asks, was the Exodus just one big setup? Because right? it seems that our relationship with Hashem today is premised on the Exodus. That because Hashem rescued us from Egypt and brought us to Har Sinai, that is why we are eternally bound by His Torah. Now, it is true that Hashem rescued us, yes, but then again, isn't it also true that Hashem plotted out our slavery back at the Brisbane Habasarim? And a lot of Mepharshim talk about the extent to which we were going to be sentenced to exile and maybe Paro, you know, overreached and Paro can still be blamed for overreaching, for doing more than he should have done in terms of the oppression. That could all be true. But at the end of the day, if Hashem sentenced us through the Brisbane Habasarim, to Gullus, then what that means is that Hashem is not only our rescuer, but it seems that he's apparently also the mastermind behind our suffering, which kind of 
seems at least to very uncomfortably undercut his credit as our rescuer. You know, like you can imagine, like if someone pushes a person in a wheelchair down the stairs and then before they hurt themselves, you know, they run to the bottom and catch the guy. So, you know, that, that you know, we wouldn't we, we wouldn't um, intuitively give credit to him for saving him. We might say, you know, it's a good thing you saved him and you really should have. And you really didn't have an excuse like you had to save them. Um, and so good thing that you did. But you kind of had to do that, didn't you? And if that's true, so that, that then, then here's the question once again. Was the Exodus just one big setup? Because, again, Hashem seemingly set us up. Yes, he took us out, but he also put us in. You might say that there's some, you know, there's some blame that the Bnei Israel themselves carry, considering Mechiris Yosef, considering how Yosef um, turned the Egyptian economy, um, he turned Egypt into a superpower that, became, that the world became dependent on, and that the that the commoners of Egypt became um, became um, dependent on, and that eventually the Bnei Israel themselves would be dependent. There are a lot of naturalistic um, forces that led to the Egyptian exile, but again, even if you know, even if you could blame, even if you can um, say that the Bnei Israel deserved on a certain level uh, to suffer, at least somewhat. But the Brisbane Habasarim goes well back before Mechiris Yosef. So Hashem, Hashem had promised once upon a time that there's going to be an exile and I'll take you out. So if we give credit to Hashem for taking us out, we should also acknowledge the, the, the point at which Hashem says, I'm going to put you into exile. And then at that point, the question is, where exactly is the due um, that, you know, that we're supposed to pay to Hashem through the Seder, with all of the dayenus and the thank yous for what Hashem has done for us. Is that to turn a blind eye to the fact that Hashem has seemingly set us up for this exile? Don't you, you know, if you're going to put someone in exile, don't you have to have an escape plan for them if you want, you know, you know, like, like, isn't this something that Hashem had to do? And you could say maybe we weren't on the level and Hashem theoretically, and maybe from, from what we deserved, maybe Hashem could have killed us out. But meanwhile, the exile was still part that, that that was baked into the cake. That was already part of the plan. So, are we missing something here? And are we wrong for asking this question? Like, is is this a fair question? Is this not a fair question? That that Hashem has seemingly set us up for this exile before the eventual redemption from that exile. So it's a pretty heavy question. I think it's a fair question. Um, but the question is, you know, is, isn't this true? And how do we, is, is there a way to cope with this? Is there, is there an answer to that? So the first thing I'll say is that in terms of Hakar Satov, you always owe a debt of gratitude when someone does something good for you. Um, you should, you should thank the person that saves you, even if they were quote unquote, the reason that you were in harm's way in the first place. You know, Hashem is constantly blowing life into us. So I, I don't think this is a question about th- a thank you versus no thank yous. I think, you know, the thank yous are, are in order. But what we have to try to understand is Hashem's master plan. Now, we can never fully understand that, so we could possibly end the, end the conversation here. But I think there's an extent to which we can understand. And I think this actually goes back to a conversation that we actually find in the Midrashim in our Parsha that takes place between 
none other than Miriam, the sister of Moshe Rabbeinu, and her father, Amram. And Moshe Rabbeinu's father as well. And Aaron's father as well. So what's, that, what's the nature of that conversation? The conversation that takes place is that Miriam is scolding Amram, saying, why have you separated from mom? You realize that everyone's going to separate from their wives. And that's about it. You, you know, like, this is the wrong thing. And Amram says, well, look, look at the world. Look what's happening out here. You know, you produce children, and they're just going to get thrown into the water. And Miriam's counter-argument is, okay, well, your decree is actually worse than Paro's. Because Paro is only sentencing the boys, you're sentencing the boys and the girls. Moreover, Paro is only removing them from Olam Hazeh. But you know what? You're removing their opportunity for Olam Haba as well. That's the argument that she makes. Now, this, this argument is very important because we can, you know, our, our intuitive argument, which um, is the basis for the question that I just posed to you, the, the intuitive argument is Hashem did something nice for us, but Hashem also did something not nice for us. And if we can choose, we might, you know, to, to use the Lashon of the Gemara in Brachos on Daf Hey, we might say, Lo hein velo don't give us the suffering and then don't give us the reward for it. Just don't give us the suffering at all. We'll be, you know, Hashem, Hashem could just not put us in Galas, right? And we don't, and we don't need the Geula. Just, you know, just cut, cut both out. Well, why do we need, you know, I understand, you know, Geula is a great thing. But if you just cut out the gullus, then there's no need for the geula. So it's you know it's, it's all circular. Just just cut cut those both of those steps out. Just leave us to ourselves. Leave us to be. Leave us let us let us be happy. And you might say that that same approach can explain Amram. Amram's position was let's not have kids because to have kids means to give them suffering, and you know better better that we just you know. Not give them suffering in the first place, so don't create them. And says Miriam, apparently you're missing something. And what apparently we're missing is that the be-all, end-all of all this is that if Hashem gives us a gula, if Hashem brings us to, um, you know, if, if we go through this world, we go through what's going to be in this world, then there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that, that, that light is a, is a reward so great that not given the opportunity so we would be missing out so much. And apparently there's a process that we have to go through. Baked into the cake, yes. That if we go through it, the, the payoff is incredible. And, you know, the, the, you, we have to try to figure out how to reconcile this with the Gemara in Erevin, uh, and Daf Yud Gimel, where Beis Hill and Beis Shammai talk about well, it would it be better if we would be created or not created. But the point is, humanity was created back in Boratius, and we'll get to that in a second. Humanity was created back in Boratius, and the best thing to do right now is to do our best. Now, I think this takes us really again back to the the map, the larger map of the Torah, as we've been describing week after week in Parsha Panorama. And that is, Hashem created the world, and He created the world with a purpose. The purpose, according to the Mikubalim, is to, to, to bestow the ultimate good. To define himself as God, and to be God, you have to be perfect, and to be perfect, you have to be able to give good. And to give good, so Hashem created a world where there would be recipients. And the recipients would hopefully, um, in order not to be embarrassed, they would go through the trials of this world and thereby earn 
their ultimate good. Of course, humanity after generations did not do that. And once um, after generations they failed, Hashem decided um, to isolate one individual, pick one individual who's, who's already on his way, and that person's going to become a nation. That was Avraham. He had Yitzchak, who had Yaakov. And Yaakov, finally, by the time he gets to Yaakov, we had a, we, everything was set. All the ingredients were set for the perfect family. Now, obviously, the perfect family wasn't perfect. They had, they had struggles that they had to work out. But this was the family that was going to be it. And then we have a nation. And Hashem said early on, there's going to be a, in the Brisbane of Asarim, there's going to be a time where they're going to go through an exile. And the payoff is going to be incredible. You know, it's, it's kind of like when a, when, a, when a father is riding a bike with a child. So what the father will do is the father will put the child in the most scary position. The father will, without the training wheels, he will let go of the bike and the child will have to ride that bike. But if the, you know, if, and if the child falls, you know, the child might fall, the child may get hurt. But the child also has the opportunity to ride that bike successfully and then the child has a new skill for life. And that's any time, that's any time a child has to go through a process that, that they don't want to go through. School. You know, who wants to go to school? But you know what? From a young age, the child goes to school. The child has to get in trouble a few times from the Rebbe or from the teacher before they respect that teacher. And at what cost? Is the teacher just bullying them? Oh, you know what? I, the same teacher you know, can get you in trouble and make you do work. And if you do your work, you'll get recess. But you know, why, why send me to school at all? Just don't send me to school. I don't have to get in trouble. Okay, so I won't get recess either, but at least leave me be. Let me be at peace. No. But if you go to school and everything works out well, and, and, you, and you learn to have respect for the teacher, and you pick up the skills that you need to pick up that the teacher is willing to give you. He's going to hold your hand along the way, and at a certain point, the teacher's going to let go. Your father's going to let go of that bike. And when you do, you, you're set. You get out of it, and the reward cannot even compare to the, the peace, the serenity that you would have had without even having the trials to begin with. You have the chance to not only engage in this world, but you have the opportunity for the next world as well. This is what, all that was baked into the cake when it came to the Golis Mitzrayim, but the Geula that would eventually follow. Did Hashem set us up? Of course Hashem set us up. Just like you're set up when you go to school. Just like you are set up when you go on a bike with the possibility of you falling off that bike. But when our parents set us up, it's not for the purpose of failure. It's for the purpose of eventual success. It's for the purpose so that we should be ultimately happy later. And sometimes you have to go through some struggles to, to attain true happiness, to attain, to attain the ultimate good. That, that is so we don't you have to eat from the Nahama de Kisufa, the bread of embarrassment, from just receiving a handout and not having done anything ourselves. And the, the Gullus of Mitzrayim is the national, it's, it's the national prevention of that Nahama de Kisufa. It's the national preparation. It's the, it's the proving ground. It's, it's the place, it's the crucible that's going to, it's going to burn us a little bit. But when we get out, we're going to be refined silver. We're going to be refined gold. We're going to come out and we're going to be ready. We're going to be able to become Hashem's people. It's not just that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. You're right. If we just celebrate the fact that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, you are missing something. Because Hashem also put us in Mitzrayim. With the purpose of eventually taking us out in the most pristine possible way that we would eventually be on such a level. 
that eventually we could be Hashem's people. Yes, Hashem set us up to make us dependent on Him so that we can be His people. You might call this a plan of domination, God's plan of domination. And you might say, wow, God is such a tyrant. Just like your teacher is such a tyrant, just like your parent is such a tyrant, except your parent is not a tyrant. Except your parent actually cares about you and wants absolutely what's best for you. And we could assume no less and Kavachomer ben benoshel Kavachomer, all the more so what Hashem wants for us. If Hashem is, is seeking a plan of domination, what do you think is the end of that domination? Hashem, just so that we should be dependent and that we should, you know, be Hashem's slaves, right? We were slaves to Paro, now we're slaves to Kaddish Baruch Hu. We're just slaves to Hashem now. So, so that's the other Pesach question everyone asks. Oh, all these halachos, all these mitzvos, now, you know, we were slaves before, we're slaves again. If you can't tell the difference between being a slave to power and a slave to Hashem, then you're, then you're missing something. If you think this is just Hashem's plan of world domination, then you're missing something. In fact, you're missing the whole basis of creation. The whole basis of creation was so that Hashem can bring us to the point where we are able to attain the ultimate good. We, have a, we are now a nation, and as a nation, we're going to be a light unto the nations, but we only become a nation worthy of that ultimate good and to be able to share that good with the rest of the world around us with the coming of that Geula Be'ez Ras Hashem, but that only comes with going through this process. And now it's on a national scale. It's not just on an individual scale. It's not just Avram and his 10 trials, but it's us as a nation and the trials such as the trial of Galus Mitzrayim to eventually the Yitziah and the Geula from Mitzrayim. Now, as we said, things don't get better at the end of Shmos, things actually get worse, and the frustration adds on. And sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. But that hasn't stopped Hashem in his plan of Geula. Again, Moshe was being was being groomed all behind the scenes, and there is a Geula that's going to come. And we shouldn't forget that when we are in the Straits of Exile, certainly today. Now, with your permission or really, even without your permission, I'm going to continue. So let's get to that other story that I wanted to talk about. And that is the awkward moment when Hashem almost kills Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? The whole thing seems very strange, but um, it's kind of important just to understand what's happening in our Parsha. So the question is as follows. By almost all means, seemingly by all means, Hashem would not allow Moshe to withdraw, to decline in the mission to redeem the Bnei Israel from its Ryan. And... We spoke about what it was so special about Hashem, about Moshe um, that Moshe um, needed you know he was virtually indispensable that Moshe had to do this job. Now, obviously, he was dispensable because um, you know theoretically Hashem has many messengers. Even if Moshe was the best candidate, there could have always been someone else. But Hashem says, while Moshe is alive and breathing, Moshe is going to be the one to do it. And in Parsha panel, we discussed what would the milos of Moshe Rabbeinu, but. That all seems to be somewhat undercut by the very strange thing that happens when Moshe Rabbeinu is on his way back to Mitzrayim. If Moshe was at least as indispensable as we've made him out to be, why would God attempt to kill him at the inn on the road back to Mitzrayim? Right? Like, well, what exactly is that story about? Granted, the Chumash and the Midrashim reveal that the story has something to do with the fact that Moshe had neglected to, to perform a brismila on his son. But is the reason why they should have warranted a death penalty? Wasn't he literally in the middle of fulfilling God's will? Maybe we would have called him a shliach mitzvah on some level. So how does this vague random story about Moshe Rabbeinu's 
a, a, a neglect of Brismila for his son. How does that fit into the context with the rest of the narrative, the rest of the story? Why does the Chumash bother recording this story? So I'll say that there's a lot to be said about the story from the Midrashim, and there are plenty of Mepharshim that, that, that you should look at. One that I like to point to is Rav Hirsch. Now the truth is, I have a long essay. Um, I can tell you exactly how long. It's an eight-page essay devoted just to this story at the motel, the lodging place. And if you want, I could send it to you, and I'll share some of the ideas here really quickly, hopefully. But um, you'll, you'll get the full experience if you want that essay. So you could just reach out to me. You know where, the database at gmail.com, and I'll send you the essay. But in the meantime, the, again, it's a very strange story. But what I'll, what I'll say is that a big part of it, has, again, has to do with Brismila. Brismila is not just a detail in the story. Brismila is a major theme of, of the Mitzrayim experience. We know this because you needed a Brismila to eat from the carbon Pesach. And Rav Hirsch actually explains that, you know, the, the idea that Hashem actually wanted to kill Moshe could not make sense on a literal level because if Hashem wants something, then automatically he's going to get it, right? So if Hashem really wanted to kill Moshe, um, then he, you know, he, it, it should have happened. Right? And so Rav Hirsch's theme here, one of his themes at least, is that there's no such thing as someone who's indispensable. Hashem does have many messengers. But why was Moshe deserving of a death penalty, so to speak, or maybe actually literally? Um, and it was because Moshe Rabbeinu was going down to Mitzrayim to redeem the nation that is spiritually unique by the symbol of Brismila, right? It wasn't just their national identity, but as we said in Muslim minutes, it was their religious identity. It was basically the only real mitzvah that they had at the time. That was their Torah, was Brismila. And the Midrash says that um, after Yosef died, when the Egyptian exile um, started to overtake the Bnei Israel, so Brismila was actually discontinued. So Moshe Rabbeinu, for this mission, absolutely had to have his son circumcised. And if he didn't, then he deserved to die. But what's interesting is that um, in, my, in my essay, I, I, I actually fit this story of Moshe at the inn back into Hashem's conversation with Moshe. Just to throw some interesting Lashonos at you. So um, just before Moshe goes back, Moshe, uh, Hashem tells Moshe, um, right after Yisro um, gives Moshe the okay, right? Moshe wanted Yisro's approval. Yisro let him go back, so Moshe starts going back to Mitzrayim. At that point, Hashem says to Moshe, Lech shuv Mitzrayim ki He says, go back to Mitzrayim because all the people that seek your life are dead. Right? You know, Moshe ran away. And so some, uh, Sarashi says they were talking with Dustin and Aviram. They wanted Moshe to die. Could be that he was talking about Paro. And Lechumish tells us that Paro died. And there was a new paro, fine, another new paro. Either way, this is very eerie that Hashem says the people that seek your life are dead, because if you look at very shortly after, we get to the story with the inn, and the Pasuk says, the same exact Lashon, the person who seeks your life. And now it's saying Hashem, meaning Hashem says the people who are seeking your life are dead, but people aren't your problem, I'm your problem. Hashem is actually about to kill Moshe. Also, it's uh, Hashem strangely... Uh, um, opens up the speech to Moshe when Moshe's on his way back, and he says, uh, so, He says, well, by the way, when you're on the way back, see all the wonders that I'm going to place in your hands. I'm going to harden his heart. And I'm, uh, he's not going to send out the nation. So, 
It's, it's, it's a very strange thing, because uh, uh, Hashem was talking to Moshe before, then Moshe gets the okay from, from, from Yisro, and then... Sorry, again. So Hashem tells Moshe, so Hashem is speaking to Moshe, Hashem says, go back. Moshe speaks to Yisro, fine. Hashem speaks up to Moshe once again and says, oh, by the way, when you're going back, blah, 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 blah. Now that's strange because that's something that would have belonged in Moshe's conversation with Hashem just a moment ago. So like, the fact that Hashem is speaking to Moshe in this piecemeal way is very strange. And what's also strange is Hashem doesn't even finish there. He tells Moshe, Vamarta el paro, and he shall say to Paro, so says Hashem, my firstborn is Israel. And then he says, and I say to you, send out my son, and, and you should, and he'll, and he'll, but you, I, I told, I'm telling you that you should send out my son, but you refuse to do so. And therefore, basically, he says, and you're going you're gonna to be killed. Your firstborn is going to be killed. It's, it's, it's right after that that Moshe Rabbeinu has his experience in the inn, his inexperience, if you will. Um, but. The, the, the point is that it's very eerie that Hashem says, look out, Moshe, for the wonders that are going to occur on the way. It's very eerie that Hashem is saying, the people that seek your soul are, are dead. And again, especially right next to this Pusik, which says that Hashem is seeking Moshe's soul. The whole thing is strange. Also, Hashem says, I'm, I'm coming for your firstborn. So we, we, we alluded to this earlier. Who was the son of Moshe Rabbeinu that did not have the brismila? So... The Ibn Ezra says, like the, 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 the basic Midrash that Rashi quotes, that it was Moshe's second-born, Eliezer, Gershom had a brismila. But there's a mechilta, there's Targum Yonason, and I found even a Ramban who suggests this. So I, the truth is, I was, I was mechaving to this on my own, but I later found a Ramban who alludes to this possibility. I found the mechilta, a Targum Yonason, um, and Ibn Ezra also quotes someone who says this. Um, a, 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 one of the Gaonim, Rav Shmuel ben Chofni, even though Ibn Ezra doesn't agree with this position, but they all say that who was the son that needed the brismila? It was actually Gershom. When Hashem, what that sounds like is that when Hashem says to Moshe, tell Paro, I'm coming for your firstborn. So it's strange, again, that Hashem uses the Lashon, v'omar elecha, right? And I shall say to you. This expression in the Pasuk is strange because the speech presumably was already directed at Paro. So why do you have to add in the words, and now I say to you? It almost sounds like, in a hidden way, Hashem is also directing his message towards Moshe. He's saying, Moshe, I'm saying to you that you have neglected to free my firstborn, and now I will kill your firstborn. In fact, there, are, there, are, there, are, there is a position out there that says that when, who was at harm's way? Was it Moshe that was about to be killed? So there, is a, there are some sources that say that no, it was actually Moshe's son that was about to be killed. Now, what's happening here? Why is all this happening? Why is Hashem targeting Moshe, the wonders that, that are about to happen? So I suggested in this essay that basically Moshe is almost like a model Paro. Hashem is saying, I'm modeling what's going to happen to Paro on you. Now, why? Is it just because Moshe neglected to give a son a brismila? Maybe. But I wanted, to, I wanted to suggest that the real reason is that Hashem was still targeting Moshe for Moshe's initial refusal. Hashem said to Moshe, you're going to save the Bnei Israel from Mitzrayim, from the Gullus. Moshe Rabbeinu says, nah, I'd rather not. And then Hashem basically forces his hand and says, no, you got to do it. And so then Moshe says, okay, I'm going to do it. So then Moshe goes. When Moshe finally goes, why is Hashem stopping him on the road? Like, he was your messenger. Why are you shooting the messenger all of a sudden? The answer, I think, is because Hashem wanted Moshe Rabbeinu to be personally invested. How would he get Moshe personally invested? 
it should have been enough that Hashem said, this is my firstborn nation and you should go save them. That, and that wasn't enough to get Moshe personally invested. Now Moshe, we know from the Midrashim, he was a master at empathy, but he needed to channel that empathy for the Bnei Israel. And it could be that what did Moshe need? Moshe needed to see his own family in harm's way. The bris milah, the symbol that, um, you know, in fact, he, he didn't, he didn't um, rescue his son from the shackles of the, of the orla, of the foreskin. So in a similar vein, Hashem is saying, you have to go down and you have to save my people. Just like you want your own son to be saved, so you have to save my people. And ultimately, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu ends up doing. Now, there's a lot more to be said, um, especially the connection of the Brismila and the Dam of the Karban Pesach. So we know that the, the Navi in um, Yechezkel, which is addressing this story, quotes the Pasuk, which we say at every Brismila, believe it or not, and every Seder. By your blood you shall live. The Gemara says that this is a reference to the Dam Karban Pesach and the Dam Mila. And so there's a lot happening here. But needless to say, um, there's, there's more to be said. And now again, I, so I have material written on this if you want to see a full um, um, you know, elaboration of the story and an explanation that synthesizes approaches from Chazal and a, a close reading. But um, th- that will have to take us through this session. I went a little bit further than I wanted to, but um, th- this all had to be in here. But that, that, that takes us through the, at least the beginnings, the beginnings of, of Sefer Shemos and Parsha Shemos and next week, we're going to figure out, now that we understand, now that we have the blueprint for what's happening to the Bnei Israel as a nation, we're going to understand how that process is going to play out and why it has to happen the way it does with Paro and the plagues. What's the whole purpose of all the plagues? That's going to be a conversation that we're going to begin next week right here at Parsha Panel. Sorry, right here at Parsha Panorama and only here at the database. In the meantime, we'll um, have a wonderful Shabbos. Enjoy Parsha Shmos. And we'll pick up with Parshas Veira.